Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. We make USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at USAA.com slash bundle. Restrictions apply. Kaya, welcome to the Curve Podcast. My name is Andrew Pierce, and I'm coming to you from the lands of the Wajak people of Bulu, Perth. Pay respects to the eldest past, present, and emerging. Sovereignty never ceded. Still Standing is an Aussie-made docker about the golden era of arcade and pinball machines. It's a nostalgic trip down memory lane where director Brad Gilberson heads into the legendary arcades around the nation and chats with the people who helped form many childhood memories, like me. Brad is based in Adelaide, and as such, he frequented local arcades like Downtown and Magic Mountain and chatted with the godfather of amusement venues, Frank Sebastian, who, for the documentary, alongside other folks, talk about their history and their past of bringing these arcades to life. Still Standing is an independently produced and made film by BGVC Films and is releasing around the globe on February 22nd. In the following interview, I chat with Brad about how he made the film, what his favourite arcade game was, and whether he still managed to have the moves for the actual game itself, and some of the uniquely Australian stories about Australian arcades that he discovered during filming. To find out more about Still Standing, head over to the Facebook page, Still Standing Doco. I'll make sure to stick a link in the show notes. And to listen to other episodes of Curb, head over to thecurb.com.au. We've got a whole bunch of new interviews coming up over the next week, uh, leading into Queer Screen, as well as AIDC and WA Made Film Festival. Lots of festivals and conferences taking place around Australia at the moment. So, yeah, make sure to subscribe. Uh, rate review all that kind of stuff if you feel like it but otherwise just head over to the website stay up to date with everything that's going on for now here is a glimpse of the trailer for still standing once again available around the globe on february 22nd i want people to show their kids what they had back in the the 80s and 90s there's nothing like elbowing the person next to you on an arcade machine while you're fighting bad guys we go to the arcade play the games, we feel the nostalgia of that era, have a laugh and go home. But how often do we actually stop and think about how these games got here? These old classics have to survive decades of use and abuse, storage and transport, moisture and dirt, rot and even rodents. The likelihood of survival is slim. And for those still standing, it isn't by chance. Congratulations on the film as well. Getting any film off the ground is hard work, so you must be very proud. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, a, very, very, a lot harder than I thought it would be, to be honest. And I thought I kind of knew what I was getting myself in for. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think you were getting yourself in for? Well, I've been doing video production for over 10, well, probably 12 odd years. So I kind of thought, well, I shoot stuff every day, every week. Um, surely you just multiply you know, the amount of filming and editing. Uh, but it wasn't like that at all. It was, uh, I heard someone say that every film you start is kind of like founding a new business. And I think that's probably a better way to look at it. <laughs> it is, isn't it? It's like you've got to do the whole planning and then there's the actual filming and then the post-production and then it's the marketing, which is, uh, I think for a lot of filmmakers, they forget that the marketing is just as valuable 
I mean, not as valuable as the film itself, but it's just as valuable to get the word about the film out there. What kind of surprises have you experienced along the way in that journey? Well, I just, I kind of thought I went into this with a story in mind. Um, but as things sort of started happening, and I guess as like life got in the way of me just going ahead and making it, it drew out the time. So it ended up taking a little over three years. But if it hadn't taken that long, things wouldn't have played out in the film the way that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, so at first I was stunned at how long it was taking me to do it, but then I was kind of grateful that it took me that long to do it. But I think just you go and meet people and you get back into the editing room and you go, all right, well, this should all just flow together and everyone should sort of sort of flow in with one another. It was surprising how hard it actually was to figure out where like pinball and arcade is something that there are real fanatics about like they love it purists and they just you know that's their life they live and breathe that but there's also people that just have nostalgia from being a kid that want to go oh that could be cool a, a film about pinball and arcade so it was really about trying to figure out the best story that would kind of appeal to both in part you know what mm. i mean so I think that was the biggest challenge. I spent probably more time staring at my whiteboard and where my story arc was than I did actually editing. <laughs> <laughs> Which is good, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go back to your initial interest in this story as well. Did it come from a childhood of, of being interested in pinballs and arcade games? A hundred percent. It So much so that I was out bowling with my dad one evening at a bowling alley that I hadn't been to for 25 odd years that I used to go to as a kid. And we got there and I was, as soon as we walked in there, I was like, wow, the smell and the sounds of this place equaled Mortal Kombat 2 in my mind because that's where I used to play it. And and I couldn't really, I was stunned at how profound the feeling of nostalgia was. And I'd been thinking about making a film, I really wanted to make a film for the last couple of years at that point. And I said to my dad, I think I know what I want to make a film about. I think I want to try to, like those, the, the arcade that used to be in the back corner of the of the bowling alley is now kind of skill testers and air hockey. Mm. I'm like, what? I wonder what happened to that Mortal Kombat because that was like a place of worship for us. And I'm like, someone had to come in, drag it out, put it on a truck, and then what happened to it? Where did it go? Uh, and, you know, and so that's this kind of the, the, the question posed at the start of the film, like, where did they all go? But yeah, absolutely. For me, I kind of also set out to make the film that I kind of wish existed, uh, particularly here in Australia, because we, most of the stories that we have on this topic are in the, in the United States where they were, where most of the games were made and manufactured. So uh, very deep roots personally to the story. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I must say it's like, you know, as a kid, I would go down to time zone and, me and my mate would play there was a Jurassic Park game that was like you had to sit in this car and shoot dinosaurs and stuff like that and we went every single weekend we poured dollars and dollars and dollars into it and finally we got through it and completed it and I'm pretty sure that they were waiting until we completed it to get rid of it (laughs) because the next weekend we were like let's go and do that again and it was gone and it was just like that sense of nostalgia, I, I saw it pop up on Facebook Marketplace like four or five years ago for a few thousand dollars. And I'm like, I don't have the space for that. And I also don't have the money. But if I did, it would be wonderful to have because of that sense of nostalgia, that feeling of going to the arcade and being able to experience it and 
not only either play with yourself but play with a stranger or play you know that kind of game is just it's a tangible thing um what kind of memories do you have that you have enjoyed revisiting as you're making these films well, I think for me, and I guess being from Adelaide, and I think anyone that's also from Adelaide, like there's a portion of the film, you know, a 10 sort of 12 minute portion of the film where we kind of delve into what was huge here in Adelaide in the in sort of the peak of the golden era. And so anyone that sort of grew up in South Australia during that time will be familiar with uh, Downtown and Magic Mountain. Uh, downtown, when it opened in 1979, was actually, it was a 60,000 square feet, four story it was the biggest in the world at the time. Like it was huge. And to have that in little old Adelaide was kind of mind blowing, uh, more my, my, mind blowing when I realized that it was actually how, how significantly big it was. Um, but I, but Frank Sebastian, who, who started downtown then went on to do his summer venue, which was magic mountain down on the, on the coast. And I have specific memories of going there as a kid, very, very, like amazing memories of the of the arcades and the pinballs there but on top of that there was a lot of other things you know we had dodgem cars and mini golf and sky water slide sky cycles so for me personally revisiting that stuff was pretty amazing to meet frank who is now uh he's in he's possibly somewhere around 79 80 years old like he's you know it was a long time ago and to hear what it was like for him like sort of pioneering these things was pretty amazing um I also got to be around a few Mortal Kombat 2 cabs, which, you know, were my favourite thing. I ha actually had one here in my office for a while that I used for some B-roll. And um, it was just amazing being around. I think you for you kind of forget how many games you kind of knew and loved. And then when you see him again, it just unlocks all these memories, you know. So I had an absolute blast filming this thing. Like, I was so keen to get it finished, but I was dreading the end of it because... That was going to be the end of my my journey, um, I guess, so to speak. Um, and, and the film really did feel like a journey. And I have tried to make the film feel like the viewers coming on that journey with me. It's it's sort of chronological in, in the journey and the way that I ventured out to, to discover these things. So, What Mortal Kombat 2 player or character do you go with? Melina, all the way. Right. <laughs> did you um, did you manage to kind of slip back into the the moves and stuff? Did you remember the move set? They're all still there subliminally, <laughs> and as soon as you get on that cab, there it's all unlocked. Even the finishing moves, I'm like, well, I actually don't even need to look them up. I remember these. It, I, it must be some sort of muscle memory. Yeah. <laughs> so you you know, as you're saying, you're touching base with people like Frank who. You know, they're an older generation. How do you go about finding these people and, and getting into, I guess, the pioneers or the people who helped usher in all of these memories that we, we're talking about so fondly? Well, I think as much as, like, speaking specifically about Frank, who kind of, you know, like, there's there's about 12 or so key people in Still Standing, and they each kind of represent a different part of the industry or the community. But I think someone like Frank, I think for him, as much as some of the older guys from previous generations believe that it's kind of a dead industry. I think it still is the memories for them are so fond as well. Like Frank, you know, uh, I don't think that it's actually in the film, but Frank did say on camera that it was, um, it, it never felt like a job. Like it, it was like a, it was like a dream to be living. Like he would go to downtown in the morning, check up on how they were going there, drive down to magic mountain, 
And he just was like, man, it was, my life was amazing. Like it was, it never felt like work. And it was just, and I think when something's that, is that popular and that exciting for people, I, I can see like, how would they? So I met with Frank and we got chatting and he was kind of curious. People had done segments on, uh, you know, the current affair and stuff like that on Frank in the past, but the the angle wasn't really like f- what I was trying to do. I think those angles were kind of like, uh, I don't know, just a bit more on the surface. I really wanted to delve into the people behind it. Like who are the kind of people that are doing these for, for the public and the community? And once I think um, not just Frank, but everyone in the film knew that my intention was to just kind of create this sort of, um, I don't know, I guess it's kind of like a comfort food for people that love mm-hmm. this stuff, a bit of a love letter back to what we all got as kids growing up. I think it was got easier to get people on board to want to be a part of it. Um, and I managed being managed getting every every person that I reached out to by the end was was keen to be on board, which was which was awesome. So yeah, it was it was received quite well, even just from a conceptual sort of point of view, um, uh, just from the get go. Really, yeah. I mean, you were talking about earlier how there is that difference between American gaming culture and then Australian gaming culture, specifically arcade culture, is probably a better word to use. Yep. What kind of things that emerge as you were filming that really stood out as a, a significant difference between Australia and America? Uh, the big things are probably, well, there's a few. Um, our population and how spaced out we are. When when the arcades, well, I guess you're going back even further, getting machines here was a logistical nightmare early on because every individual game was just that, an individual game. It's not like getting a, you know, like a, a disc for your PlayStation now. It was a 75 kilo chunk of wood with a one single game in it and a big heavy CRT screen that would have to come all the way across in a shipping container. Uh, We eventually evolved into making sort of uh, conversion kits here so that we could just get the game board and the art. But the problem is when the the big sort of differences are is that when it all died out in the late 90s and early 2000s, we just didn't have the, the places or the population to for people to absorb these big things into home collections at the time. Um, and nobody really wanted them because they were completely going out of fashion. They were old tech and they were weighing a ton. And what was, you know, things that were, are now probably worth five to $10,000 were going out at auctions for tw- $10, $20. And if they didn't get sold, they had nowhere for them to go. So they end up in landfill. So our, our generational gap where it all died out was way more profound here because when it died out, it really died out. And so what we have now is quite special because they were, they were preserved. Each each single game that you see out there now was has a story of someone saving it and keeping it and keeping it running. You know, so um, I think that's I think that's a that's that's what's really specific about this story in Australia. And the, there is that restoration process as well. I mean, I I know you've been to PAX. I've been to PAX, and I've got a few friends who are are really into restoring arcade cabinets and collecting them and just experiencing seeing you know, their process of actually taking them apart, making sure that everything actually works and then putting it back together and making it look as close to original as possible. Um, can you, I, I don't know if you've actually done that yourself or have, have, you know, engaged with people who have, but that restorative process is quite a, a powerful thing. Can you talk about that by any chance? Absolutely. I mean, we have, we do a segment of that in the film where we talk about the restoration. We show, we show a restoration taking place. And then we also look back on a couple that have happened. And 
Um, I think that's one of the things that might, fit, like I said before, where you got the the audience being diehards and then people that are just sort of love the games. I think for those people that are just coming at this as a a punter and a fan, I think it will be quite mind blowing what actually has to happen for them to continue to work. Even if just one little thing starts going on it, that part might be 30, 40 years old. And especially for pinball, if you need that particular part, um, it's hard in Australia to source them. And and the knowledge of how to fix that stuff was definitely dying out there for a while. And it's not until sort of new operators are coming into the scene and learning these skills from the old techs. Um, yeah, I think that's quite a... That, that, that's one thing that I think is uh, is not obvious on the surface to these big, you know, glamorous looking machines is that they're quite old inside and a bit temperamental, you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah we, we, yeah. we go through that in the film in, in, a, in some detail and I think that'll surprise people what, what actually, I think it'll give people a headache to be like, oh, God, and no, I've never done it myself. Um, <laughs> and I especially don't want to, after making this film, I'm like, well, I'm just going to appreciate the ones that are working. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. I, I'm curious as well, like the CRT monitors give a certain vibe. There is a feeling to it. And I know that nowadays we're, you know, we're all talking about graphics and stuff look how hyper real things are and yeah good oh like that's that's nice but there is something about that experience of watching and playing a game on a crt monitor um what does that mean to you that that visual aesthetic of crt monitors yeah i think that that warm a warm soft glow that we all associate with the nostalgia i think we recognize pretty quickly when it's just being emulated on a mm. sharp LCD screen um, that you go, hmm, that wasn't, that game wasn't widescreen and that yeah. wasn't that sharp. So I think, you know, and audio, the audio as well, just something about the way it sort of like resonates inside those big cabs, um, you know, and you can hear that when you go into an arcade. Um, at the CRTs and, and keeping those original sort of screens, they become like a bit of a, a, a rare sort of like collectible in themselves. Um, one up in Brisbane, the one up arcade in Brisbane mm. where we went towards the end. Um, Stephen there has got, his arcade is like dedicated retro arcade. And if it doesn't have a, like a CRT in it, it won't go on the floor. And he's got uh, something like 250 games out there, all with original screens. And when you go into the backstage area, well, not backstage, you know what I mean? Like the behind, the workshop sort of area, um, which you see in the film, there's just shelves and shelves of spare CRTs or CRTs that have come in that are awaiting testing because just they just grab them when they can because inevitably a, a, a screen will go out and some they want to swap it out and, and put it back in. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're very important. They're a very big, important part of, like, what keeps them all running and they're highly sought after. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and hard yeah. to repair when they, when they go bad, yeah. You presented at PAX. Was it last year that you presented at PAX? Yeah, yep. Yeah. What did you what was your presentation about and what's that experience like for you as somebody who is telling these kinds of stories attending PAX, which is such a vital kind of expo in Australia? It, yeah, well, it was actually really scary to be honest because I had been working on the film for so long in my own little bubble and uh not many people had seen really anything of it apart from a, a concept trailer, which is pretty much the same as the current trailer, it just had different sort of bits and pieces in it. But um, PAX was the first time I showed any of the film publicly outside of that trailer. Um, and the approach that I took with Still Standing was 
there's not really much gameplay footage. It shows a lot of the games and the cabs, but it's it's a people story. It really is a more of a story about people. And I don't want to release the film and give it a preface, but I wondered what if people would, you know, it's kind of a different take. Like these, yeah. there's you could do a lot with gameplay and whatnot, but there's almost no gameplay and still standing. It's just about the locations and the people and the history. So, yeah, it was very daunting to be like, all right, well, this is it. I'm two and a half years in. I hope that people are okay with the way I've chosen to tell the story, you know, because uh, if they're not, I've come a long way up the wrong path, you know what I mean? Uh, but going to PAX was amazing. I was, I felt, I was really, uh, you know, stoked w- uh, when PAX reached out to me and invited me to come and, and present. Um, uh, I think I did it like a 20-minute preview which actually wasn't really anything like um the film finally ended up being i ended up having to cut its own thing if you know what i mean because the way the film works you can't really just pull sections out like that they're kind of it moves in phases throughout the film so uh but yeah it was it was awesome i loved it i went over there with one of the guys that um helped shoot michael he helped shoot a few times and he's a great photographer so we just had a ball over there like taking cool pictures and videos of the city at night and, and talking to people about pinball and arcades. And it was, it was, uh, it was really nice that people showed up that, that knew about the film that, and that were keen, that were excited about the film coming out. So it, it just, it, it, it uh, gave me that real motivational push to, because after that, I think I only had one or two shoots left to do. And then I just knuckled down and got the rest of the post-production done. So it gave me that little, you know, boost of motivation to get this thing over the line. So yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what I love about PAX as well is that while it's, you know, there is a, a strong focus on modern video games, there's also board games. There's, you know, older games as well. And there's a whole variety of everything. It's not just one thing. And it's this really great diverse area of just being able to experience people who love video gaming and, and arcades and physical gaming and all this kind of stuff in all different capacities. Uh, had some great memories of attending there. It's a really brilliant expo. Love it. Yeah. It is. I, I was stunned how big it was. Yeah, um, it's huge. I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow, this is huge. Like, um, and I had a bit of a reunion with one of the guys in the film, Lyndon from the Australian Pinball Museum. I hadn't seen him since we filmed and he's out sort of like in the middle of sort of regional Victoria, I guess. He's sort of like halfway between Adelaide and Melbourne in Nil. And he has this amazing pinball museum out there. And and he had uh he had an area there where he brought like some of the old classics and pinballs and the old real old sort of 1930s, 40s stuff. Um so I I had a little reunion there. I seen him there and I was like, hey man, how have you been? Like it's long time no see. I'm still working on the film. I'm here promoting it. And he was just still doing exactly you know what he was doing, which is just putting the word out about like the historical stuff. So yeah, it, yeah, I absolutely loved PAX. It was awesome. I'd love to attend again, um, purely as a guest, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and sort of, uh, yeah, enjoy it on that level, uh, even more, you know, so. Where do you see the future of the, you know, supporting and, and restoring and saving, uh, arcade machines and pinball machines? Where do you see the future of it going for the younger generation? I think the future really is looking bright. I think when I've started the film and especially given the title of the film still standing, by the time I finished the film, I was like, man, I better hurry up and get this film out because it's making such a resurgence. Still standing is not going to make sense anymore because there's a lot of, (laughs) there's a lot of like great up and coming, like, you know, younger crew operators that have got this, like they're, 
this fresh burst of energy to, you know, that, that they played it as kids, sort of like, you know, as we did, but uh, have some know-how or started off with a collection that are really passionate about bringing it back. So as much as we talk about like the history and where it came from and how it died out, uh, definitely towards the end, my feeling is that, yeah, it, this is, this is going to keep going. I think this is, uh, there's a lot of contributing factors, but it's, it's definitely going to, um, it's definitely, it's definitely going to um, serve another generation or two at the very least, um, if not find a, a new home as a, as just a staple now, you know, it's sort of had its going out of fashion period and the community pulled together to, to pull it out of the landfill and get it back out there. And I think people are just loving it. And, and yeah. my hope is that still standing makes, makes people feel a little bit more appreciative uh, of the guys that do this stuff. Cause it really is, it really is a lot of blood, sweat and tears to, 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 to just to put these things in front of the, uh, the public. Yeah. So it's saying that yeah. we should be really grateful for. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's a fantastic that you've a spent quite a lot of time bringing this story together and, and being able to champion and su- celebrate and support all of these things. Um, and, you know, get a film out there is again is a magnificent thing. So congratulations for that to begin with. Yeah, um, but I guess as we wrap up, uh, where will people be able to catch this film? Where will they be able to watch it around the world? So still standing is coming out worldwide on Amazon prime. Um, it's, it's actually currently already out on Tubi. It, they released it a little early, uh, which is fine. Um, there are a few other platforms that it's coming out on that are sort of in the works. Uh, and, uh, Doc Play, which is um, Australian, UK, and New Zealand, um, which actually had, which I'm, at, which is actually like a really incredible documentary platform, and I feel quite uh, honoured that they actually, you know, that, that's hand picked, so they picked Still Standing, so I feel really, really, really quite, uh, you know, blessed that they that Still Standing was picked for that. But Amazon and Tubi, obviously, the real easy ones, uh, and yeah. There, there are quite a few, probably five or six different platforms, but they'll be the main ones. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I'm I'm a huge champion of Doc Play. I love Doc Play. I, it's so know, good. It's awesome. <laughs> and the amount yeah. of Aussie stories that are on there as well. That like there are, I think it's over 200 Australian documentaries on there. So it's a wide variety of things. Uh, so you're in yeah. great company. And as you said, it's handpicked as well. So you know that somebody's looked at and gone, yeah, we need that. So it's wonderful. Congratulations. It is. I, I felt I felt very I felt like I was like quite proud of that. I was like, wow, they picked still standing. Like I didn't expect that and I really yeah, I'm so stoked. So yeah. <laughs> From a filmmaker's point of view. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for your time and being able to chat about still standing and uh having a bit of a, a walk down memory lane, nostalgia lane and stuff like that. Uh unfortunately, uh I don't know. I think the time zone down in Fremantle still exists. So, you know, I'll have to go down and uh, slot a few quarters down there. Or, well, no, you've got to put on a card now, don't you? There's I know. There's something about it's the aesthetic take... of putting a dollar coin in, which, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the old school places in Still Standing definitely have the coins. So, like, even more bonus points for those guys because they're keeping it OG. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Definitely. Well, I have to go down there and give it a spin. But uh, yeah, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been a wonderful chat. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. Appreciate it.
Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to oscastnetwork.com for details. Something grand is coming to Nemecolon. Opening fall 2023, the Grand Lodge will surprise and delight with 56 stunning suites and five-star butler services. Indulge in libations at the Circle Bar and the Study before you savor the new and enchanting Fawn and Fable restaurant, where the best parts of a traditional steakhouse and a fairy tale castle create a magical dining experience. With fine dining, a spa, and over 100 adventure, golf, art, and wildlife experiences, whatever your imagination holds, Nemecolon has the key. Visit nemecolon.com for more information.